Amen. Thank you again, kids. We appreciate your ministry to us. What a blessing. Musicians, let's get our Bibles out. Open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, page 1358 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So it's been about three months now, if you're keeping track, as we've been moving through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, this first letter, and God has been uh, meeting with us and ministering to us through this wonderful uh, passage of Scripture. We've seen where uh, early on in the book, God uh, was revealing to us all the amazing things that are going on in this young church and how in their uh, blossoming faith, uh, they were flourishing even though they were in the midst of all this uh, persecution around them. In fact, Paul, only after a few short weeks of, of ministry there, was run out of town uh, for fear that not only for his own life, but for the lives of the believers that he left behind. And so uh, the, the reason we've called this series Flourish is because the astonishing thing about the, the Thessalonians is their ability to flourish in the midst of such great hostility and pressure and tribulation. And so uh, we've seen how God has used them to then reveal to us how He is uh, writing our story individually. And we've talked in depth about how God will intervene in our lives. He'll change our setting uh, just as He did. There were people who were just living in this town, Thessalonica, for years and years, and it was just, they thought that the next day would be just like the day before, and then suddenly their setting changed, and the Apostle Paul comes in, and the gospel is introduced into this city, and so this group now has a new setting, and then within this new setting, they begin to make choices every day that set the context of what their story is telling. And all of us, our lives are telling a story. And we are in this setting. And then the choices that we make every day set the context for what our story is going to be. And so God is not only writing a story individually here among each of us, but He's also writing a story corporately. And so at the end of the letter, Paul begins to address the church. He begins to talk to them about how they can continue to flourish moving forward. And so he's given them some warnings of some things to be careful of. And then as we introduce this uh, part, uh, this one passage here that we've been looking at last week, um, he's talked to them about making sure that they have a right understanding of what will happen in the end or what happens to believers after they die or what is God's uh, promise and plan and hope uh, as uh, we come to the end of our lives and so on and so forth. And God has been so gracious and good to, to allow us to see all of these things and then to relate it back to our own lives and then ask some questions like, who are we as a people and what is God what is the story that God's writing here at Michael Memorial? And how will that story, what legacy will we leave behind? How will that story continue to flourish as we move forward? And so let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll begin where we did last week, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word, and Lord, we ask that you would, through the power of your spirit, give us ears to hear, that this word might come into our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to receive the supernatural power that's before us, Lord. 
God, we submit to you. We ask for your help. We declare our dependency upon you. This word is perfect and errant and holy in every way. And we are a blessed people to possess it and to be able to freely read it and discuss it. And so now I pray that you will speak through me, anoint my words for your people and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at the very end of this uh, passage. We're going to look at verses 19 and following. Now the, the 16, 17, and 18 we'll deal with next week. And so we're uh, just switching things around a little bit. But I feel that we need to address 19 and following after our discussion over the last several weeks. You know, when you look around the landscape of Christianity, when you have conversations with people who uh, attend church other places or other churches or maybe in your, the course of you living out your uh, witness before the, the world and, and witnessing to people about church and about Christ and then inevitably in the process of those conversations what happens is, is that you will uh, begin to draw out from those that you talk to uh, either the, all of the, the negative things that have happened to them in the past in churches or the reason why they don't go to church or, or things that they've heard or that's happened to other people that have told them or you know, just a, a, any number of reasons. Sometimes it can be quite discouraging. Sometimes it can be a bit uh, depressing even to uh, hear those things. But to me, what's more depressing than that is to encounter people who with their mouth would proclaim this living and vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus would uh, give total verbal assurance to their salvation and yet their life lacks power. They, they seem ineffective in their walk. Uh, on one hand, they will, will, will talk so highly about their past experiences with God. But on the other hand, if you, if you bring it into the present and you ask them about when was the last time that they led somebody to faith in Christ or the last time that, that God moved supernaturally in their life or in their family or around them or, or supernaturally answered a prayer that they had been praying or you get this blank look. This sort of, uh, well, I certainly hope that you're not here this morning and, and you would say to yourself, well, that, if I were honest, sounds a little bit like me. My life seems to lack supernatural power. The people around me seem to be ambivalent. They don't seem to be moved by my life, by my words. They seem to just uh, relate to me as, as if I'm the same as everyone else around them. I would ask you this morning, is it possible? Is it possible that you really don't believe that anything could happen in and through you right now in this present moment? Did you wake up this morning and do all the things required for you to, to get to this place in this moment, to get to church, to whatever that in, in, entails for you, and without giving any thought to the reality that anything in Christ is possible in and through you today? Maybe with your mouth you say that you believe in the power of God in the Holy Spirit that you uh, believe lives within you. But could it be that you're actually living your life in such a way that you're trusting in yourself, in your own abilities, in your own gifts, in your own training, in your own wisdom? And maybe the reason why so many lack the power that the Bible just so plainly and clearly proclaims that every child of God possesses. Because maybe we need to more often have the conversation that we'll have this morning. 
No, Jesus said in John chapter 16, you all know this, but he, it, it is worth us sort of centering our minds on the conversation. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is mind-boggling for me to imagine the reality that God in the flesh is standing on earth and talking to mortal men. And in the course of conversation, he says with his mouth, it is to your advantage that I go away. How could anything be better than the incarnate fullness of God standing right before us in flesh and bone? But he says it's to your advantage because if he goes away, then he'll send a helper. A helper that he'll send to us. Now this must be some helper. This must be some help. There must be some capacity that, that is for many untapped in the help that Jesus is referring to. And I think that that reality begs at least two simple questions. How do we tap into this power? How do we tap into this power? And what, if anything, can prevent this power in our lives? Because certainly, I want to know how to tap into it. And if there's anything that I can do or anything that I can say or any, any activity in my life that could prevent this power from, from being prevalent in my life, then I need to know what that is. You know, every day uh, as I open my Bible and spend time with the Lord, just me and Him, I begin that process by I open my Bible and I always say something like, Holy Spirit, please, will you today use your word to minister to me. I need you to help me. I want to see you in the pages that I'm about to read. And I, and I ask God, I say, Spirit, will you put me in contact with people who need to be encouraged in you, that need to know you today? And it's my desire to be a witness for you and to speak on your behalf. And before I ever make it to this place behind this podium in this moment, I always ask the Holy Spirit to fill me and to empower me and to anoint my words and to use me in a way in which I cannot be used in and of myself, that only He can give unction to my preaching, only He can give life to my ministry. I don't have anything to offer in my flesh, and I certainly don't want to stand before you and ever merely have a talk. But I know that all of that is completely and utterly dependent upon God and His willingness. I want to read an excerpt from you from um, one of my favorite books, certainly one of my favorite books on this particular topic. In uh, Forgotten God, author Francis Chan says this, I believe that God is calling us to depend on Him for living in a way that cannot be mimicked or forged. He wants us to walk in step with His Holy Spirit rather than depending solely on raw talent and knowledge that He's given us. But instead of living this way, we've created a whole brand of churches that do not depend on the Spirit, a whole culture of Christians who are not disciples, a new group of followers who do not follow. If all God asked for were faceless numbers to fill the churches, then we would be doing things right. Most of us would feel pretty confident. But simply having a good speaker, a service that is short and engaging. It's one of the reasons I like this so much. A service that is short and engaging, a good venue, and whatever else we add to the mix uh, does not make for a good or successful church. God intends for His bride, those who claim His name, to be more than this. 
God is not interested in numbers. He cares most about the faithfulness, not the size of his bride. He cares about whether people are lovers of him. And while I might be able to get people in the doors of a church or to enter into an auditorium if I tell enough jokes or even use enough visual effects, the fact remains that I cannot convince people to be obsessed with Jesus. Perhaps I can talk people into praying a prayer, but I cannot talk anyone into falling in love with Christ. I cannot make someone understand and accept the gift of grace. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So by every measure that actually counts, I need the Holy Spirit desperately. I want us to see uh, four truths about the Holy Spirit before we can look at our passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. Because it won't do us any good to start talking about uh, something if we don't know exactly who he is and what he's about. The first one is the Holy Spirit is a person. You can't have a conversation about the Holy Spirit in, unless you initially, from the beginning, enter into that conversation with the complete and utter assurance and understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it. It's not a force. It's not a power. He is a person. And I think the fact that we... Uh, in the Trinity, have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Because fathers and sons are common to us, we relate to them, those members of the Trinity, as people. But when it comes to God, uh, the Holy Spirit, we tend to uh, refer to Him as an it, which is offensive to Him at the very least. He's as much God as the Father is or the Son is. Jesus said in John chapter 14, And I will pray to the Father, and He will give you another helper. Now notice what Jesus says, That He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as Him. And, and Jesus also tells us about this person the Holy Spirit, that this person the Holy Spirit only dwells in believers. So we want to know that the Holy Spirit is a person. Secondly, we want to know that the Holy Spirit is God. It's a very fascinating uh, example of this in Acts chapter 5. You are undoubtedly familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the fact that uh, they were, they had heard about Barnabas and his success in the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Barnabas just happened to do that they happened to know about was Barnabas sold a piece of property and gave, his, uh, and gave the money to the kingdom of God. And somehow they connected, I believe, uh, the blessing of God on what they, Barnabas had done. And so they sold a piece of property and then came before the apostles. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 5 that a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now understand, the Bible's not teaching that what they needed to do or what you need to do or I need to do is if we sell something, give it all to the work of the Lord. That's strictly up to you. But understand what's being said here. Verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? It was your possession. You were free to do whatever you wanted to with it. And after you sold it, was it not in your own control? You were free to do whatever you wanted to do with the money after you sold it. But why have you conceived this thing in your heart where you would pretend to come and give it all, but you're not? You're lying to the Holy Spirit. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And notice what the Scripture says. You have not lied to men, but to who? God. And so what the Scripture is teaching us is that when we relate to the Holy Spirit, we're relating to God. And we need to be very careful because I think that a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that the Holy Spirit is less God than God the Father or God the Son and may wrongly relate to Him and cause ourselves great grief and anguish. The third thing I want us to see is that the Holy Spirit prays for us. Prays for us. In Romans chapter 8, 
verse 26, the scripture says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us. That's capital S, Spirit. Helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I need to explain a few things from that passage uh, for just a moment. This isn't just particular situations when we might find ourselves in great difficulty that uh, uh, the Spirit is making intercession for us. We live in a state of continual weakness. We live in a state of continual need. We do not know what the Spirit knows. We have no capacity to not only know the future, but to know and understand the fullness and the scope of God's will in any situation beyond the the pages of Scripture. And so when the Scripture says, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but that's okay. That's okay. Because the Bible says that the Spirit makes intercession for us. In other words, God the Holy Spirit, He intercedes on our behalf. He goes before God for us. He he, uh, petitions God for us. He lifts up or appeals on our behalf to God the Father, just as God the Son does at the right hand of the throne of grace. So the Spirit Himself comes to our rescue and intercedes for us. You see, that's important information to know that the Spirit always prays according to the will of God because sometimes the Spirit of God will, uh, well, all the time the Spirit of God knows things that we don't know, but sometimes we'll be praying about something and we'll be asking God to do something and in our mind it makes perfect sense to us and, and we, may have, we may believe full well that, that that's what uh, ought to happen, But the Spirit of God may know differently. And sometimes as we pray for uh, something, the Spirit of God may know that what we need is pain. What would be the best thing for us would be pain. Because pain would then uh, correct some of our wrong thinking. Or maybe what we need is patience. Or maybe what we need is any of the other attributes of the Holy Spirit to be made manifest in us. And many times those are made manifest in us through difficulties, not difficulties that we necessarily wanted, not difficulties that as we entered into, we understood what was going on around us. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is not like us. He doesn't think like us. He's, he's omnipotent. He has all power. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? The rhetorical question is, nowhere. There's nowhere that you can go away from the Holy Spirit. And so when the Apostle Paul says that about the Spirit in Romans 8, that he knows the one who searches the hearts what the mind of the Spirit is. You see, God the Father knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Why? Because the mind of the Spirit is according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit, think about this now. He prays for you. He prays for you. And then fourthly, the Holy Spirit has emotions. The Holy Spirit has emotions. Now this isn't unlike the other members of the Trinity, but it is it is unlike the other members of the Trinity and the way that we interact with these emotions. The Scripture says, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What that means is to be sealed means that we are secure, that it is permanent, that it's irrevocable, that at the moment of salvation we received the Holy Spirit and we were sealed for the day of redemption. But it's what precedes that truth that is so startling. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve means exactly what we would understand it to mean. It means to bring pain or sorrow. It is the opposite of joy. Now, just based on what we've only said up until now about God the Holy Spirit and His ministry... I think we should stop and just pause in this moment and think about the reality that 
we can grieve God the Holy Spirit. That you and me can grieve God the Holy Spirit. This God who is unsearchable. This God whom I could never uh, stand before you and give words to uh, fully describe or adequately even paint a picture of His immense attributes and wonder and splendor. That very God, the God who reigns over the universe, that God can be grieved by us. We can do things to grieve the heart of the Holy Spirit. When we do something immoral, when we are disobedient, when we are uh, when we when we sin, uh, it is rare that we sin and aren't fully aware of our sin. The vast majority of our sin, we know it's wrong when we're doing it, and we do it anyway. And when we do so, here's what we do. We typically are more worried about God being mad at us than God being hurt. Our focus will be on God being upset, God being angry, God being wrathful towards us. And we don't think about the fact that God is hurt by our actions. Now, to understand this, I think God, whenever Scripture teaches us something that is really uh, impossible for our human minds to comprehend, how can, how can people, little, finite people like you and me, how could we possibly hurt the heart of God? That I do not understand, except for I do understand that my, uh, the people in my life that have the greatest capacity to wound me are my children. And my children are far less powerful than I am, and yet they have the greatest power to grieve my heart. And we are far less powerful, to say the least, than God. But yet in this relationship, we have the capacity to grieve the heart of God. So let's talk a little bit about what Paul says now with that understanding. In 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 19. Paul simply says, do not quench the Spirit. So number one is be sensitive. We need to be sensitive and not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, we can't really have a conversation about quenching the Holy Spirit until we first know the difference between grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit. Because we've seen in Ephesians 4.30 that we can actually grieve the Holy Spirit. Now Paul says, quench the Holy Spirit. The, the author of Hebrews says that we can offend the Holy Spirit, which is a completely different thing that applies to unbelievers. But grieving and quenching apply to those who are children of God. So what is the difference between quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit? Quenching the Holy Spirit is what we do to the Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit is how He responds to what we've done or to what we did. You see... Our actions quench the Spirit. The result of our quenching actions grieve the Spirit. You need to understand how those two exist together and how they're always in the same place at the same time. Because wherever there's quenching, there's grieving. And wherever there's grieving, there's what? Quenching. Because what quenches the Spirit grieves the Spirit. What we do that causes the Spirit to be quenched or the fire to be dampened grieves the Spirit of God. And so, uh, wherever one is, the other is. Now, when we start talking about quenching the Holy Spirit, 
It's very easy for us to get immediately off track because when I say that the Spirit is quenched by the things we do, then our attention goes to the things that we do. And if we're not careful, we'll bail off a cliff into legalism and start getting all tangled up in the things that we do. So let's make sure that we have the right balance of what's being said here. Quenching the things we do. Now the goal is not to do certain things. The goal is to become like Christ from the inside out. You see, when I say that we do certain things that quench the Spirit, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about external activity. I'm talking about the external manifestation of the internal activity. I'm talking about what quenches the Holy Spirit is when we act in such a way that is not representative of a heart that is seeking after God. So we're not talking about behavior modification. Now let me explain clearly exactly what I mean. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe to you, you hypocrites. He says, For you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, now listen to what he says. Which are indeed, they indeed appear beautiful outwardly. Now understand, these religious people are doing all the right things. And Jesus is telling them that externally their doing appears to be outwardly beautiful. But inside they're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So understand something. Quenching the Holy Spirit is not merely external behavior modification. It is when we resist or rebel against inward transformation. Jesus says about those in Matthew chapter 6 who are busy giving and praying and fasting. And He looks at them and He says to His disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They've received it. You know what their reward is? For all their giving and all their praying and all their fasting, their reward is that everyone around them thinks that they're great. Everyone around them thinks that they're religious. Everyone around them thinks, wow, what a fine, upstanding person. What a, what a highly moral person. Their reward is their public reputation for all their external efforts of doing things externally only. They're no different from a whitewashed tomb. They look great on the outside, but on the inside they're full of hypocrisy and rotten dead man's bones. You understand that there's no freedom in this kind of religious life. In other words, I know who the Holy Spirit is because I know what the Bible says about Him. And I know certain things are characteristics about where He's present and what His activity looks like. And so I know that if we are merely uh, trying to do certain things and not, try, not uh, allowing God to create in us a Christ-like character or nature, then there's no freedom in that. See, the secret to freedom, contrary to what most people believe or what maybe your fleshly mind would think, the secret to freedom is becoming a slave to Christ. Freedom comes in slavery to Christ. Paul says that we were once slaves to sin. But we've been set free to become slaves of righteousness. That it is in slavery to Christ that freedom comes and the Spirit works. So we need to be sensitive. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Know and understand that the Spirit works from the inside out. And that the out does give... Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. The out does give uh, representation of what's inside, but it has to be from the inside out, not the outside in. Number two, so we need to be sensitive. Number two, we need to be attentive. If we're going to be a people that flourishes in the midst of uh, a hostile world, uh, uh, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggling, in the midst of, of uh, sickness, in the midst of not knowing and understanding the things that go on around us, we need to be attentive. Paul says in verse 20, he says, do not quench the Spirit. And then he says, do not despise prophecies. Maybe your translation says, do not hold prophecies in contempt. 
When he's talking about prophecies, he's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about the fact that if we're going to move along this path of sanctification, if we're going to begin to walk in a way that's going to transform us from the inside out into the character and nature of Christ, we're going to have to have a right relationship with prophecy, with the Word of God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, we need to feed on the Word of God. It needs to be our sustenance. It needs to be our source of strength. It is what is going to make you grow as a Christian. The Spirit is the agent of the Word. You have never sat down before a page of Scripture and been moved and got illumination and understanding. You have never heard a sermon preached from God's Word and been moved and got illumination and understanding apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The agent of the Word of God is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes the Word of God come alive in you and give you grants you eyes to see. And so every single Time I'm with you, I pray, God, give us ears to hear. Fully knowing that every person in this room has two physical ears. So clearly that's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking the Spirit of God to come and to grant hearing that apart from Him we won't have. The Spirit is the agent of the Word. He's also the author of the Word. Look at what the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That He is the agent of the Word and He is the author of the Word. He wrote the Scripture. And so the prophecy that we're to be attentive to, the Word of God that is read or preached or proclaimed, that, that infiltrates into our life, we need to be attentive to that because it is the Holy Spirit who is the author of that and the agent of that. And if we're not attentive to the Word of God, we'll grieve the heart of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, He'll be, we will quench His work. So by not being attentive, we then quench the Spirit, and by quenching the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit. John chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 13, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He's the one who will guide us, who will lead us. Now, now listen closely. In fact, today in starting point is... The day that I talk about how to read the Bible and how to understand the Bible and how to alleviate the, 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 the terrible curse of trying to read the Bible and then walking away and 30 minutes later not remembering anything you read or understanding anything or just having some uh, external uh, uh, activity where you're checking off a box. All of that is a waste of time. But there's a way to approach the Scripture and read the Scripture and understand the Scripture. And so I'll teach today in Sunday school exactly how I learned the Word of God. But I can tell you this, that in the process of uh, knowing how to read the Scripture and understand the Scripture, nothing's going to happen apart from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's going to guide us into all truth. We need Him to work in our hearts that we might know what the Bible says and what the, what the Bible means and the character and nature of the God whom we say that we love and desire to serve. So we need to be sensitive. We need to be attentive. Number three, we need to be discerning. Look at what Paul says next in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, test all things. Test all things. You see, he didn't say test some things. He didn't say test things. He said test all things. Don't listen to something and just assume that what you're hearing is correct or that what someone's telling you is factual, which is why it's so important for you to have a, a copy of Scripture in front of you or to have you know, the Bible on your iPhone or iPad or whatever the case may be so that as, as I'm 
expounding the Word of God to you, you can see what the Word of God says and you can see for yourself and you can allow the Holy Spirit to work through you as you read the Scripture and realize that this is what the Bible says and maybe that you never realized that before, but it doesn't change the reality that it's here and that it's real and that it's true. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, there's so many illustrations and examples of this. There's so many uh, discouraging things that, that I hear about, that I deal with. I well, had a conversation with a church planter who, who's planted a church in one of the largest cities in Florida, and the church is is growing and, and thriving. And they've been meeting in a school and uh, school cafeteria. And so they have to set up every week and take down. And now they've moved into two services. And it's very exciting what God's doing. And he was telling me that there's another church in the same city uh, that was meeting in a school on the other side of the city. And that that church recently moved into this big facility. And that church had grown, you know, so much faster than his. And that he was you know, a little bit disheartened, you know, as a young church planner as to, you know, why is this other church seem to be flourishing so much more than we are? And so he, uh, he determined in his heart that he'd build a relationship with the pastor of the other church. And so he, he called him up, invited him to lunch, just wanted to get to know him, wanted to maybe thinking there was something he was missing. And in the course of their conversation, they started talking about uh, you know, this and that. And, and the other pastor said this to him. He said, well, here is the, 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 the key to our success. We never get into anything deep. As a church, we do not get into anything deep. And we stick to that. And that's why we've grown so fast. I just, I don't know what else was said after that because I could, that's all I heard. And all these thoughts started running through my mind. Like, had I been sitting at the table and I could have leaned into him and I could have said, Sir, I understand that you feel that it is not your responsibility to get into anything deep, but I just have this one simple question for you. Whose responsibility is it? If you don't get deep, if the church doesn't get deep, then who's going to get deep? How's anyone ever going to get deep? In other words, how much more offensive to the Holy Spirit could you be than to simply say, no, we're just going to live in the shallow end of the pool. We're going to swim in the kiddie pool all our life. And... That's how we're going to exist. And people obviously are going to flock to that because what do we want in our flesh? We want the easy way. But what we're going to find out is that it's not the way at all. It's not the way at all. There is no easy way. There's only one way. There's only one way. And so we've got to be, we got to be discerning. We've got to, to test all things. We've got to know and understand that if we're flippant about uh, the things of God, if we're not attentive to prophecies and discerning about the things that we accept and hear, then we quench the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we fail to show ourselves approved unto God because we have not studied the Word of God. We don't know. We're ignorant. We quench the Spirit of God when we mishandle it or don't rightly divide it. We quench the Spirit of God when we wrongly apply it to our lives or the lives of those around us. Sadly, so oftentimes, things are said in the name of God that should not be said. And I would just simply uh, commend to you this morning that if someone comes to you for counsel if someone comes to you and asks you a, a question about the Lord, do not say things that you don't know. Be very careful about what you say on behalf of God. Because in doing so, you may very well be quenching the Spirit of God within you and being offensive to God in the things that you're saying. 
We want to receive the word of God with humility, James 1 says. We want to be, we want to be uh, testers of all things and be careful not to quench the spirit of God and rightly apply it to our lives, which would mean we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. That our faith might not be dead, but it be alive according to the book of James. So we want to be sensitive, we want to be attentive, we want to be discerning. And then notice fourthly what Paul says. He says, be faithful, be faithful. He says that we're to test all things, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. In other words, he's saying don't stop doing what is right. Hold fast to what is good. Goodness is not defined by what we refrain from doing. You don't hold fast to what is good by refraining from doing things. You can only hold fast to what is good by doing the things you ought to do. You must be proactive to hold fast to things that are good. It is, it is an action. And so, the only way to hold fast to what is good, the only way to be faithful, is to do what is good in the eyes of God, and not what is good in our own eyes, or the eyes of the world in which we live. Sometimes we, we need to be reminded of the fact that the devil's operation in our lives... The, the end goal of evil around you is not necessarily to make you bad. The devil really doesn't need to strive to make you bad because that's going further than what he really needs to go. All the devil needs to do is to get you to be indifferent. Once he gets you to be indifferent, he's got you right where he wants you. And the only thing that can follow an indifferent heart is bad. Because an indifferent heart is a heart that's out of fellowship. A heart that's in broken relationship. And so, once we become gods, there's only a limited capacity that the devil has. And that is, uh, so his real goal in our lives as believers is not to make us bad, but to make us indifferent. You see, if my, if my endeavor daily is to move closer and closer to God, well, I'm not going to be able to do that unless I spend time with God. And I'm not going to be able to spend time with God consistently unless it's good time, unless it's quality time, unless, there's, unless that time is yielding something. That time can't yield something unless the ministry of the Holy Spirit is involved in that time. So you see what happens is that oftentimes I might talk to people who would say, well, pastor, I have in the past wanted to be closer to God and I have endeavored to move closer to God. And so then I started to, to try to read my Bible every day or try to spend time with God every day, but and nothing ever happened and nothing ever worked and it would just become laborious and that only lasted for a short amount of time and I just gravitated back to the way I was and so I've given up. And so when you say, uh, you start talking about wanting to be closer to God and know God and then, then I just shut down. But listen to what I'm saying. If you're quenching the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're never going to get closer to God. Your time with God is never going to be profitable. You're never going to get anywhere with God because you're quenching the very God that you need to get closer to God. We can't just in our mind say, I want to get closer to God. And then be quenching the work of His Spirit in our lives and expect something to happen. It doesn't work like that. We've got to be faithful to Him. We've got to hold fast to what is good. That you see, it's the Spirit who draws us. It was the Spirit who first drew us to Christ. And it's the Spirit that in our Christian lives and in the process of sanctification will continually draw us to be more like Christ. It's the Spirit. In other words, if you know someone and you would say to yourself, you know, they are very Christ-like or I wish that I could grow in the Lord the way they do. What's the difference between me and them? The difference is not that they, you got the same thing in salvation if they, as they got. Every person who's in Christ is equally, totally, and completely in Christ. 
The difference is the operation of the Spirit in one's life. And if you're quenching the Spirit by not being faithful, then you can forget it. Not to mention the fact that in quenching the Spirit, you're grieving the very heart of God by your activity. Because God has a plan and a purpose in your life. And when you quench the Spirit, you are quenching the power that that God intends to propel you into His purposes. So what we could say is, is that your capacity to move into the reality of what God intends for you to be is dependent upon your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. It's not dependent upon your church attendance. It's not dependent upon the things that you do. It's not dependent upon external behavior. It's dependent upon your relationship with the Spirit. So you have to, you have to be in tune with the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, not grieving the heart of the Spirit by internally allowing the Spirit of God to work in you that will then externally manifest itself in outward behavior and actions. It's not waking up some morning and saying, you know, I really want to be closer to God, so I'm just going to start doing these things like some formula. No, 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 listen to me. It doesn't work like that. In in Romans chapter 8, everyone loves the, the, the passage of Scripture where the Bible says that, that we're led to come to God and cry, Abba, Father, that we can call God Daddy. But if you read that passage, what you find is that it's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God. He Himself is the one that will bring us to a place where we cry, Abba, Father. Same thing is true in Galatians, where Abba, Father is shown. It's the Spirit that leads us. It's, you see, it's the Spirit. When you feel convicted, right now, many of you, I can see it on your faces. See, it's good that you're all facing my way, so no one else knows. But I can see the conviction on your face. Where does that come from? That's the Spirit of God putting conviction upon your face. And right now, all the things that you're thinking about and all the things that are going through your mind, the way you're responding to this information is because the Spirit of God is putting conviction upon you. And now here's your dilemma. What will you do with that conviction? Because what you do with that conviction will then determine whether or not you quench the Spirit and grieve His heart or whether you walk in the power of the Spirit and flourish in all that God intends for you to experience through that conviction. The Spirit wants to draw us in. He is is the key to relationship. I want you to think about that. You see, we oftentimes think that the key to relationship with God is Jesus. Because Jesus is the key initially to relationship with God, in a sense. Actually, it's the Spirit that drew us before we even entered into a relationship through Christ, right? But we have a tendency to think about relationship with God as being solely through Jesus. But listen... The Bible doesn't say that we grieve the heart of Jesus. The Bible says we grieve the heart of the Spirit. The Spirit is the the member of the Trinity. The Spirit is is the part of God's character and nature that draws us into communion and fellowship and relationship. And so when we grieve His heart, the reason we have the capacity to grieve His heart is because that's the core of our relationship with God. Let me put it to you this way. Earlier I said that every parent knows that it's children that have a greater capacity to grieve our hearts than anyone else on earth. And you don't have to be a rocking scientist to figure out that the reason that is is because we love our children so much more than everyone else on earth. So why do you think we can grieve the heart of God, the Holy Spirit? It's because He loves us that much. 
He loves us. And He's in us right now. And everywhere we go and everything we do, He's with us. And so He's with you when you go to work. He's with you when you're thinking thoughts that no one else knows. He's with you when you're watching things. He's with you when you're thinking things. He's with you. He's with you every moment, every second of every day. He's with you. And to be quite honest, I am utterly convinced that there are many people who have quenched the Spirit of God in their life for so long that you don't even know what it's like to not have the Spirit quenched in your life. You don't even remember what the power of God is like moving in you. Because for so long you've just quenched His Spirit. That even this morning, as you think about the fact that right now you do feel conviction and that, that you know from Scripture that that's coming from God, you also know that what you normally do is what you can do today. And you can just shuck it off and you can just make an excuse and you can just forget about what's happening and you can just go on with your life and you quench the Spirit. And so you just exist in this place where you think that normal is anything but what God intends for you. The capacity of God is within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Every saved person has supernatural capacity within them to see God move in unexplainable ways, to experience God in, in unexplainable ways. We have to be faithful. Just in case we're not convinced that it's the Spirit of God that would empower our faithfulness. That to be rightly faithful must come from the inside out. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the book of Ezekiel, God talking about what He will do and how the giving uh, a shadow of what the new covenant will be when the Spirit of God is within us. Listen to what the, the Bible says in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will put my Spirit within you. And look at what it says. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. But what that verse could go on and say, unless you quench the Holy Spirit, which will grieve the heart of God. Whenever you walk in obedience, whenever you walk in faithfulness, whenever you rightly do that from the inside, it's because the Spirit within you is leading you, that you're hearing that, that still small voice, that you're being nudged along, that you know in your heart that's wrong and that I should do this, that you know that you should be serving this way or living this way or giving this way or being this way. It's because God within you is, is urging you and propelling you forward. He's, he's praying God's will for you, but, but you've accustomed yourself to ignoring that and defying that. And so for you, you can live as a child of God and, and spend inordinate amounts of your life walking in the flesh. You can't do that forever. But you can do that for a time. And it is the most miserable existence on earth. I know exactly when I walk in the flesh and I hate it. And I feel that sick feeling inside. And I feel that gut-wrenching feeling of just knowing that God had put someone on my heart. That God had placed something for me to do that, that I knew and, and that I said in the moment, Yes, God, I'll, I'll do that. But then I got captivated by lesser things and I forgot or I moved past it, or I... And, and though it was maybe not intentional, it was still nonetheless quenching the Spirit. You see, I want God to speak to me. I want God to talk to me. And the best thing I can do to hear from God is to listen when God speaks. The more I listen, the more He speaks. Because the Spirit will cause us to be faithful and to walk in... His commandments and keep His judgments. And lastly, we want to be wise. Sensitive, we want to be attentive, we want to be discerning, we want to be faithful, and we want to be wise. He says at the very end, verse 22, and abstain from every form of evil. Run from things that appear to be evil. Avoid evil activities and evil people. 
be aware that for at least two clear reasons with regards to the Holy Spirit, we need to be very cautious about evil around us. One is that every person that professes faith in Jesus has people around them watching and bears a great responsibility called witness. And if you involve yourselves in things that are evil, you not only lose your witness, you not only damage the reputation of Christ, but the spirit that is within you that exists for the sole purpose of exalting Christ in the world through His people, the very purpose for which He exists is dampened because you have chosen to hold on to or to grab hold of things that are evil. Secondly, if you behave in evil ways, you will not do that alone. You will do that influenced by other people. And the way that that happened was because you, at some point in your life, have allowed evil people to come into your life into too close a proximity to you. And the Bible teaches beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you allow evil around you, it will begin to affect you in horrible, horrible ways. That you're going to be impacted and I'm going to be impacted by the people that we do life with. Scripture says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools is destroyed. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 22, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What is Paul saying to Timothy at the end of his life? Paul's saying, Timothy, I'm about to leave this earth. I'm about to die and go and be with the Lord. And I'm leaving you here. And I'm passing this baton to you. And you're going to have to take up this mantle. And for you to be successful in walking in the power of the Spirit, you've got to be very cautious about who you allow in your life, who you do life with, who you walk with. Because if you, if you allow yourself to be infiltrated by people who are not lovers of the Lord, it's going to destroy you. No matter how strong you may think that you are. And so what I'm saying to you this morning. is I don't, What I don't want you to do in this moment is feel, is feel so much regret. Maybe for time gone by. Or opportunities missed. Or, or, or opportunities lost. Or I want us to grab hold of this moment. And I want us to say today in this moment. Holy Spirit. We, we want you to work greatly in us. We don't want to quench you in our lives. We, we want to experience the fullness of who you are. We want to be able to walk away from this moment together and, and rightly respond to conviction and rightly respond to the, the nudging and the still small voice in our, in our heart. We want to be sensitive to him. So I want you to get your... Uh, listening guide and turn it over on the back and we're going to read this together I'm going to read I want you to just read with me and as, when I'm done reading there'll be a time of invitation so when we get to the end you can just stand and in that time we're going to be reverent to the work of the Holy Spirit we're going to respond rightly to what God's shown us but we want to declare these truths to be right in our heart as we read these paraphrases of the reality of the Spirit of God in our lives. So let's read together. It is the Holy Spirit who equips us with the strength we need to accomplish God's purposes. He is our comforter, our advisor, our encourager, and our strength. He guides us in the way that we should go. The Counselor teaches and reminds us of what we need to know and remember. From the Spirit, we receive power to be God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. It is the Spirit who draws people to the gospel. The Holy Spirit not only initially draws people to God, but He also draws believers closer to Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit sets us free from sin, we cannot get rid of on our own. Through the Spirit, we have received a spirit of adoption as children, which leads us into intimacy with the Father instead of a relationship based on fear and slavery. 
The Spirit bears witness to us that we are His children. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Spirit brings us life. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom, not bondage or slavery. In our world that is plagued with death, this is a profound truth that points to real hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound with hope because our God is a God of hope who fills His children with joy and peace. As members of God's kingdom, each of us has been given a manifestation of the Spirit to serve others and build up the church. We all have something to offer because of what the Spirit gives us. The fruit of being led by the Spirit of God includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These attitudes and actions will characterize our lives as we allow ourselves to be grown and molded by the Spirit. The Spirit is our sanctifier. Amen. Will you stand?